0: Welcome to the Media Cat Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Mike Pigger, editor at the magazine. And for today's pod, I have two big brains, which are no doubt gonna run circles around me. Uh, First, I've got Paul Feldwick, uh, author of The Anatomy of Humbug and Why Does the Pedalist Sing? And uh, second, Faris Jakob, uh, author of Paid Attention and co-founder of the consultancy Genius Steals. Uh, Welcome to both of you. Hello.
1: Hi, thanks for
0: having us. I say big brains. And I do have some evidence to back that up so uh in a past life during my time at the marketing society i did a podcast with paul on uh, pt barnum and the lost art of showmanship uh, which i remember being one of the most listened to podcasts we had uh, and paul you've written uh, one piece for media cat magazine so far on the success of oatly uh, and it's the second most read piece on our website this year and faris uh, similarly you did a 10 minute uh podcast talk for me at the marketing society on the topic of attention uh, which was one of our most listened to talks on the channel that year uh, and you've already written three superb articles for, for MediaCat magazine on uh, fast and slow change, protopian advertising, and uh, another on change and purpose. So uh, that's my giant fawning intro out the way. And I want to kind of talk about a few things now. So last month's theme at the magazine was uh, Face the Strange and how well we're coping with changes. Obviously, I took a bit of inspiration from Bowie there. Taking some inspiration from him again, uh, Fame being another one of his tracks recorded in 1975, uh, representing his uh, dissatisfaction with uh, fame and stardom. Uh, so my first question, I guess, is uh, how important is fame today for brands or anyone trying to lead a business or organisation or anyone that wants people to follow them, basically? And has the nature of fame changed over the decades, do you think? Um, who, who wants to to kick
2: us off?
1: I think I should let Paul start it, at least. It's um, squarely in the area of his current uh, work.
2: Well, thank you. Um, after you, Cecil, after you, Claude. Yeah, I mean, I've got to a point of thinking that fame is, is really a very central uh, a central idea for, for building brands um, and for the role of advertising in building brands. Um, as always, it's not an entirely original idea. Um, the great Jeremy Bullmore explained a lot of it uh, really very eloquently 20 years ago in his famous lecture, Posh Spice and Purcell, where he He took a quote from um, Victoria Beckham saying she always wanted to be as famous as Persil Automatic, and he built a sort of riff on that about the resemblance between celebrities and brands and argued at the end of the day that, you know, the main thing that makes brands successful is that they have fame, uh, not just because they're known to millions of people um, and therefore bigger but actually because we also prefer things that are famous. They have a sort of magic for us. Now, that theory, which, like, like many other things that Jeremy said, sort of might have sounded a bit whimsical at the time, I think now sounds a lot more solidly scientifically based because we now have the publication of Byron Sharp's book when, well, How Brands Grow and the concept of mental availability as they've labelled it. Now, I think that sort of that justifiably sort of rather rather dry scientific term, I think is not identical with fame, but it has it has a lot to do with it, because I think fame is is really the way that you create maximum mental availability in practical terms. And, and whereas you know mental availability, as I say, it sounds a little bit dry and theoretical. Um, just using the word fame immediately takes you into a completely different context. I think the, the world of, you know, the world of uh, show business, the world of I want to, to to live forever. I want to learn how to fly. And I think that we have always rather underestimated that in the way we talk about advertising and the way we talk about brands. We, we emphasise things like brand essence. We emphasise things like. Brand propositions and, and advertising messages. Actually, when it comes down to it, uh, probably the most important single construct that we need to bear in mind is, you know, the building of mental availability through through fame, through social social buzz around around a brand. So I think it's always been important, and I think it always will be important. Uh, the ways in which it's done may change uh, and continually evolve. And it's never an easy thing to do, but I think it remains a central concept.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm in violent agreement, perhaps unexcitingly for the sake of debate, but I do think all these big principles that we currently have come to in the industry, kind of the few things that we think are really reliably true. So there appears to be quite a strong correlation between excess share of voice and growth. Feels like that just means you've got in front of people more than your competition, which means you aggregated more, or at least potential attention, which means a couple of things, right? On an ind- individual level, the mere exposure effect means we tend to slightly prefer things we've seen before. So familiarity creates fluency, which creates a degree of favorability. And then to Paul's second point, at a cultural level, there's a separate thing where you can't be famous to one person there's a sense that fame is the understanding that what you know about something to some degree is known by let's say many or the majority, or there is some standard understanding of it. Otherwise, you know, brands can't work as identity signifiers or anything like that, because nobody would know what they sort of mean. So I think like share a voice and attention and mental availability and and fame, they're sort of a continuum of the the same model. And I think to your point, Paul, it is like, you know, the oldest idea. I think Andrew Ehrenberg said, and you've quoted it as, have I, advertising is ultimately mere publicity. It's just, you know, making things famous in culture in some yeah. way. Yeah, I think that that notion
2: of culture, that social dimension, uh, I mean, conceptual at least, I think that's, that's a thing that sort of, differentiates fame from mental availability. Mental availability, Mm. as defined, as measured, is something that kind of goes on between a pair of ears in somebody's head. Whereas fame, I think, is something that is very much socially constructed. It's not just that I know that lots of other people know about it, although that's important in itself. But also, if we all know about it, if we all care about it, It becomes a social currency. It takes on meanings that we create amongst ourselves. Mm. It gives us things to talk about. It gives us things to argue about. It gives us things that we want to own and wear and show off. You know, um, we can all dress up as Hagrid and go to a Harry Potter convention. That's all part of what makes Harry Potter a famous brand, for example. and, And, you know, again, Barnum knew how to play that game right back in the 1850s when he was, Promoting Jenny Lind, it was all about getting people to buy the Jenny Lind merchandise, the Jenny Lind tobacco, the Jenny Lind pianos and riding props, and everything else, um, and and all the other devices that he used to get people actively involved. So I think that social dimension of fame, and then which of course leads you into that that dread word which we we could talk about if we wanted to, culture, um, <laughs> which is another dimension of it. But certainly, it it becomes part of the world that we're living in, and, and that's, that creates its strength and its power.
1: Yeah, culture's a very tricky one, but I, I do think you're right. There's a, there's a sort of broad sense that the more famous something is, the more important it is, as you said, as a status value in kind of traditional anthropological terms. But, you know, I think art's a good example of how this market works, basically. Art that's very famous is worth more. The more famous the art is, the more it tends to be worth. The most famous pieces of art are the most valuable pieces of art. They're sort of related ideas. They've aggregated some kind of accumulation of attention, which is, you know, fame, and therefore it becomes worth something.
2: The interesting thing about that, Faris, is that um, what actually becomes the canon of famous art, when you look at the history of it, it often turns out to be quite arbitrary. There's a great story about this in Derek Thompson's book, Hitmakers, which I... I cribbed shamelessly in, in my book and you know all the most famous impressionist paintings um, that now are the ones that we all recognize today if you trace back the history of where those paintings come from it turns out they were all the paintings that were bought by one of the minor impressionist painters a guy called Gustav Kayabot. and then he had his collection and he put it into an exhibition that then became very famous and so those pictures became valued. The only reason that Kyobot bought all those paintings were well, they; those were the ones that nobody else much wanted. So his friends would let him have them very cheap. So uh, what makes one painting really famous and what makes another one not so famous is not uh, necessarily to do with its intrinsic worth. Um, it actually accrues its appeal through its fame. And, and so things build over time. The Mona Lisa, was never the most famous painting in the world until somebody stole it. Uh, And then suddenly it was in all the newspapers and everybody recognised it. And now everybody goes, oh, yes, what a great painting. I'm not sure if it's a great painting or not. It's kind of a meaningless question,
1: but, uh, you know, that's why we value it. Which I think is part of the huge challenge sometimes, which is, I think Duncan Watts writes about this in terms of any kinds of cultural product, be it music or film, they are subject to a lot of arbitrary forces and then at some point cumulative advantage kicks in for some random reason a song or a film gets slightly above the pack and that advantage accumulates and compounds and makes something a number one hit if that's still a term that is relevant i don't know if charts matter anymore in terms of music that's right i mean
2: i do wonder whether today that process has been at all accelerated or exaggerated by the you know the global connectedness uh, and frictionlessness of our digital world. So, whereas, you know, it it took quite many years and hard work for say Coca-Cola to to evolve into a powerful dominance of the the cola market, um, particularly, especially on a global scale, it must've taken decades. Mm. Now that you'll find that a brand like Airbnb or Uber can sort of assert that dominance very, very quickly, because many aspects of it are quite, uh, are in some ways frictionless. I mean, not totally frictionless um, or Amazon, for example. You know, they, they obviously, they still have to build infrastructure. Amazon still have to have warehouses and delivery systems. Um, Uber still have to have drivers, but the, the, the point of, you know, get everyone to download an app. You don't actually need to have a, a horde of salesmen going out and putting it in a million shops you just kind of go, the app's here, you know, click on your phone and you've got it. So, I, I mean, you're you you you're more um, kind of
1: up to the minute than I am, Ferris. What do you think about that? I mean, I think there's a couple of different pieces that we now have a global distribution mechanism, which bears the cost of reproduction and transmission to some degree. So a thing can appear everywhere all at once without really any additional costs. So in some ways, yes, but... At the same time, that very thing has led to the fragmentation of these large media things. So, like, what famous means now, I think, is slightly different than what famous used to mean before 2000. There was a sense that famous was everybody knows who the Rolling Stones are or the Beatles are.
2: Yeah.
1: Whereas I'm sure BTS is very, very famous to a very large number of people. But I'm also pretty sure that a number of people will never have heard of BTS and never yeah. will. And that's a different thing. It's kind of why the the bands that can still consistently fill stadiums tend to be bands that predate the digital free fragmentation of media, because mm. they still have these masks, like across audience audiences, I suppose. And yet people who who create
2: limited fame within those sort of digital bubbles, I think still have the potential to move outside those bubbles. And many of them do, many of them want to do so. Yes, Charlie D'Amelio at one point was only ever known to anyone who was on TikTok, which, you know, nobody over the age of 19 or whatever at that time. Right. Um, But then before long, she's on the Super Bowl and she's doing a duet with, I forget who it was, but, you know, she's doing a duet with some massive rock star. And, you know... People who are smart, people who want to ride that tiger of fame, they're not content with being within the bubble, however big their bubble is. This sort of phenomenon, it kind of struck me a few years ago now when Joe Sugg, who at that time was a, an influencer nobody had heard of outside, you know, a few million people who happened to follow him, he appears on Strictly Come Dancing and now, now Strictly has at least one influencer every, every program. Um, why do they want to do this why aren't they happy because actually this will build their frame um you know Joe Sugg is now no longer just known to you know the the kids who are following him he's known to their mums and their grandmothers um and and he is becoming or has the potential to become he's probably gone off the boil a bit now a household name so the last I hear he's appearing in the West End and I mean you know he may he may end up not accounting not not amounting to a great deal in the great scheme of things but he's riding he's riding that tiger towards towards global fame and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know so yet yeah, there is a point at which it's cool to be the thing that your parents have never heard of but then there's probably a point at which if you want lasting fame you yeah. want to get outside i mean i'll be interested to see what happens with a brand like shein which everybody says shein the most successful most famous brand nobody's ever heard of Because unless you are actually into Shein, or you read marketing press, and even in the marketing press, it's hardly ever mentioned, unless you're actually big on TikTok, Shein is kind of, what the hell is that? But it's actually the fastest growing sort of fast fashion retail outlet in the world. And it has an incredibly, you know, effective, powerful um, e-commerce strategy that is backing that up. But, you know, I can't help feeling that at some point, I, I know TikTok are doing this, I think. Very consciously, at the moment, TikTok are promoting themselves way beyond the bounds of TikTok. They are promoting themselves on all other social media very actively. They have a department of thousands of people actually doing this. They're they're paying to be seen around football stadiums and paid advertising and, and everything. So you know, I think um, some of those rules of fame, you know, the world changes, but. But the basic principle that uh, you know you're known to a particular group, but to be truly famous, yeah. you need to be known to people. I mean, like, you know, there's only a few of us who who, who may ever own a Porsche, but we all know what it is, we all know okay. what it stands for. And that's crucial. Power derives from that. You got do you guys think you know you're talking about
0: influences and things does that feel like new fame versus perhaps old fame and you know does it come what does it come down to like is it attention like you say with tiktok they're trying to get everywhere and be everywhere so everyone knows about them um is there an element of longevity um if you just stick around for long enough then people kind of know who you are or does what is the thing that top, uh, trumps it is it um the mindset of an entertainer as you've said in the past paul with like pt barnum I'm trying to think what the what the um, formula for fame is nowadays.
1: Well, I don't know about go, go on, Paul. Sorry, go, 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 go on, on Ferris. On. Well, I was going to say that I don't know about the, the the influencer thing is slightly confusing. The whole area is a bit blurry to me, and like content creators versus influencers, and it, to me that they just seem like they had developed a sort of a different content supply chain. Ultimately, for, for how brands choose to communicate to different discrete audiences and the way social works was that they kind of half own an audience and half create content. So they're both a media property and a creative entity at the same time. So they gave that kind of aspect, I suppose. But I don't know if that's a formula. Although I do think there's sort of an impact where there's a sense that influencers have this alignment of identity and what they say and who they really are as people. And when there's dissonance between their image and something they do that causes this kind of backlash in the community at least my understanding thereof on, on YouTube and I think that in some ways being applied to everybody up to brands as well like I think it's always been the case but more so now where misalignment of behavior and image and utterance is so much more obvious to people I think.
0: But, um, I mean that was actually going to be my next question around authenticity and, and fame sort of how they How do they interact these days? Do people just see through people that are trying to like, I don't know, buy their way to fame or, um, you know, they don't don't really believe what they say? You know, if if you do have that mindset of an entertainer, do you have to really live it and breathe it and believe it? Can people tell if you're fake, basically, you're trying to chase
2: fake fame? Yeah, I'm sort of sceptical about that without having really thought about the question. Um, I mean, I'm always (laughs) sceptical about the word authenticity because I'm never quite sure what it really means. And and I suspect it's not getting to the heart of the matter. I mean, I think if people are genuinely sufficiently interested, attracted, or even appalled by somebody, you know, that will be enough to maintain and grow their fame. You know, we, we, we can't have this discussion today without mentioning Elon Musk. And I mean, it would be interesting to sort of ask the question in what sense is he... Authentic. Um, in, in what sense, uh, you know, is, is he sort of in tune with the with the times? Uh, and I think the answer is that his main characteristic is that he's he's volatile, he's unpredictable, mm-hmm. um, he's he's often outrageous, um, and all this serves him extremely well. And he knows how to play the game. Uh, you know, I mean, there's been um, a little thread going on. One of, the, one of the social media saying, you know, hey, look, um, you know, Tesla don't spend anything on advertising, but they're awfully famous brand. Uh, and I sort of observe that they, they may not spend anything on advertising, but A, they have Elon Musk, and B, he's dropped several billion pounds on building spaceships as well as trying to buy Twitter. So, you know, these are, these are not things that are done under a bushel. These are things that, that people are interested by, excited by, want to talk about, want to argue about. Want to complain about, but all of that keeps him keeps him in the papers. You know, I mean, he doesn't just use Twitter because Twitter's seen by a lot of people. It's not actually seen by that many people compared with most other social media groups, but it's seen by all the journalists. So anything he says that's sufficiently outrageous on Twitter will get written up in all the all the other media, um, and 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 that's how he plays the game. Uh, whether in the long run this this you know flourishes or not remains to be seen but at the moment it doesn't seem to be doing too badly despite you know the fluctuations and the share price and everything else you know you can say he's he's taking a lot of risks and he's 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 playing a crazy game but he's actually playing the fame game Mm -hmm. quite effectively and that may be at the end of the day the thing that matters most.
0: Are you guys seen the film uh, The Aviator or at least you know familiar with uh, you know the life of Howard Hughes because it kind of it puts me in mind of that a little bit. You know, he was—he was just always this charismatic frontman with crazy ideas, or would say crazy things and be outrageous. And I mean, you know, is—is is that that sort of charismatic frontman that can kind of just lead a organisation kicking and screaming in the right direction, or in a direction?
2: I've not seen the film. I'm, I have some concept of Howard Hughes. I think your principle is probably correct that there has always been a case that uh, you know the the charismatic and slightly outrageous character. Achieves achieves one kind of fame. It's not the only way of doing it. It's a way that perhaps works especially well in this digital age, precisely because of that that global reach and that frictionlessness and that interconnectedness that I was mentioning earlier. But you know, I think it's um, it's it's not entirely a new thing. And um, you know, I'm trying to think of examples from the past other than P.T. Barnum who might. Who might fit that bill? I'm sure there are there are plenty of them, and Howard Hughes is probably is probably one.
1: I think also Howard Hughes is a kind of cautionary example, isn't he? Because his myth by the end is somewhat kind of sad, and by his isolation and, and kind of paranoia, and essentially didn't seem very well, and wearing tissue boxes on his feet, I think something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I guess that's part of it, right? There's there's I think yeah. Corey Doctorow, the author and internet. Um, campaigner and theorist, talks about this a little bit, where humans' greatest ability, if you like, is, is our habituation. We habituate extremely rapidly to new situations, like extremely quickly. And what's completely brand new becomes normal almost overnight. That's how we sort of survive. Because of that, there's an inevitable tendency to escalate. So if you're PT Barnum or Elon Musk and you, you've worked out how the The modern discourse, the culture can be hacked by saying slightly ever more outrageous or ridiculous things. There's this escalation arms race that inevitably has to occur because you can't just say the same outrageous thing again. You've got to say something more outrageous to get the next headline and so on and so forth. And for Howard Hughes, I think that obviously there are other aspects, I'm sure, but that escalation went badly. And, yeah. and and, well, I mean, if, if we want to talk about escalations
2: bit, yeah. going badly, we, we, we only have to mention Donald Trump, I suppose, well, like, well, in yeah. context, yes. who, who is actually another great example of everything we're talking about. I mean, I think it's worth observing at that point without making any sort of political points one way or the other, that this is a kind of a high risk game. Um, not everybody would want to do it it's arguable that to want to do it at all it helps if you are perhaps slightly unhinged to start with I mean to actually court that kind of fame and to get caught into that kind of trap and it is volatile it is risky um, it isn't always benign Um, you know and and we we do start thinking about the history of, of of dictators in the past and and how they they become demagogues and, and rabble-rousers, you know. I mean, if we go back in history. There's no shortage of those. And this is not entirely a good thing. And, and, and I think it has to be said that when we talk about fame, this is not the only manifestation of fame that uh, that is effective for marketers. So, I mean, to, to to just pull it back from the world of sort of celebrity fame, if you like, to the world of brands, I suppose what one wants to see in the world of brands is, You can actually achieve fame, but in in a somewhat more controlled way, um, perhaps a less risky way. And of course, the big difference between brands and celebrities, and I I have stressed a lot the parallels between them, which I think are important because we underestimate them. But the difference is, of course, is that a celebrity is a person and a brand isn't a brand is a made-up thing i mean it may well invent characters or be associated with particular a brand is something and that gives it that gives it some weaknesses but it also gives it some enormous strengths it gives it immortality it you know it's it's not going to um uh you know be be subject to to many of the human frailties Mm -hmm. that, that human celebrities will be i mean it still has to negotiate environmental changes of all sorts and cultural changes of all sorts. But it's in a way, it's well-placed to do that. I think it needs to be said that, you know, to come back to the notion of fame and paid for advertising, although we may may now think that's very old hat, it's still there. It's still, at the present time, it's still one very important way in which you can get a controlled um, presence in the marketplace. Uh, of course, it costs a lot of money, but that is only a reason why you ought to do it well rather than do it badly. Yeah. So to come back to the sort of the old territory of you know why do ads today look such rubbish and why 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 how could they be better? You have to say, look, if you've got a like twenty million pound you know or, or even a hundred million dollar advertising budget, follow the basic principles of fame in what you're doing because the the basic principles of fame are the same. You've still got to be putting on a show that people find compelling. You've still got to be distinctive so that people don't mistake you for anything else. You still got to find ways of being sufficiently interesting to people that they want to be actively engaged with you. And the great campaigns of the past have always done that. I think today's campaigns very rarely succeed in doing it. Um, and therefore, you know, the brands that are succeeding are often succeeding by using other other means. But I don't think that means that paid for advertising uh, no longer works. It's simply that very few people are actually using it well. Do you guys think there's a danger of chasing
0: fame these days for brands? Like, um, you know, if they get it wrong or they um, say a wrong message in a thing that they're trying to do and then they 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 get shot down or... Uh, I don't know I don't want to throw it I'm going to throw it out anyway but you know like the term cancel culture in some cases crops up or at least uh, accountability perhaps I don't know but is that why they're playing it so safe these days because you know they uh, they're afraid of getting it wrong in in oh
1: I mean
2: I I think brands have always been afraid of getting it wrong but I think they have very little reason to be afraid of getting it wrong I mean one of my response to this sort of question is, is is usually, you know, name me one brand that has been seriously damaged by getting it wrong, and people think for a bit, and then eventually somebody comes up with, oh, well, there was Gerald Ratner, which if oh, you're old I enough, you, pretty, look, you might just like- remember the story about Gerald Ratner who gave a speech slagging off his own products, and suddenly the brand seemed to die. Nobody can come up with anything else. Nestle, Exxon, you know, Amazon, uh, there are loads of brands that people have it in for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, there are all sorts of, you know, boycotts that have been going on for 30 years. And there's all this kerfuffle about, oh, I'm never going on P&O ferries again. Of course, you're going to go on a P&O ferry next time you want to go to France on the boat because you don't have much choice and you'll forget about all this. What people say and what people do in this respect is widely at variance. And, you know, if if there were loads of examples of brands that have crashed and burned simply by, you know, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, uh, I think there would be something to worry about. I I really struggle to find examples of where that's ever happened. Conversely, simply not be... I mean, it's like what Oscar Wilde said, you know, there is only one thing worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about.
1: I have to agree. I think... um I think Burnett Burnett, writes this in How Not to Plan. There's almost no evidence that any advertising ever has had a significant negative effect on brand impressions or sales. It's always usually better to do anything than to do nothing, essentially, because you're reminding people you exist. But
2: It's also the, the corollary to that, Faris, is that very successful campaigns will, in many, many cases... Um, you know, they're the ones that people will complain about and they say how annoying they are and how irritating they are simply because they're very top of mind, because they're around a lot, you know, and that's what we do. I mean, we, we, we get fed up. The, 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 the downside of fame is everyone will moan about you. Everyone will be fed up with you. I'm fed up with seeing David Beckham all over the place, you know, but that hasn't stopped David Beckham being very famous and and pulling in another £100 million through the-
1: yeah, and, and I think this
2: last year, I mean, I, I you know that the book "Hey Whipple, Squeeze This." Mm-hmm. I mean, it starts from the premise that this campaign um, for, for charming toilet paper, which ran for years and years and years, was an awful campaign, and this is the sort of campaign that we must never do in creative departments because everybody hated it. Uh, now, yes, you know, you can find surveys that say. Uh, It it came up every year, people going, oh, this is one of the most annoying campaigns around. But actually, I mean, the reality is, and Luke Sullivan acknowledges as much in the opening chapter, this was an incredibly successful campaign. It built Charmin into the brand leader. It ran for 30 years. This is what advertising does when it works at its best. It's funny. It's engaging. It's distinctive. Mm -hmm. You know, it has every quality. Um, and it ultimately demonstrates that it sold a hell of a lot of toilet paper. And, uh, you know, one of the sort of corollaries of that is everyone also goes, oh, isn't it annoying? But, I mean, it's it's getting things completely the wrong way around. And I think what has gone wrong with advertising now is not just that clients are afraid of, you know, sticking their heads above the parapets. But, you know, creative departments are afraid of producing popular, famous campaigns, because they will be seen as naff and populist. Come back Whipple, all is forgiven, frankly.
0: I was, I was going to ask you guys about, um, uh, I, I guess that kind of ruins my next question in a way, because I was going to say, you know, with the nature of, of fame and attention these days, did, did the brands, is the reason perhaps they're a bit more cautious is because they're trying to do some good in the world? Or are you literally like, I don't care about any of that, whatever they're, you know, ultimately they're they're trying to make sales. Like, are they trying to leave the world in a better place than which they found it whilst still being, you know, achieving that level of fame and attention? They're trying to do more things now than in the past where they were just selling stuff before? That may
2: be part of the story they're telling themselves. Um, (laughs) But I mean, it's not a story I think they should be telling themselves. I mean, one of the few things that any advertiser can do that will genuinely make the world a better place is produce advertising that that, that doesn't totally piss people off. So, you know, they could start by thinking about that, quite apart from all the other things like pay your taxes, treat your staff well, treat your customers well, um, you know, treat your suppliers well, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when you've done all that, and yes, you know, when you've done due diligence, looking at the environmental effects of what you do. I mean, all these should be hygiene factors now. They shouldn't be things mm-hmm. that you bang on about, you know, which is the way people come about it. When you've done all that, then then think if there's anything else that, that makes any sense. I, th- I think, again, the, the focus on purpose, uh, and, you know, the, the, there's a germ of sense in it, but but not much more than that. And it has, as many people have said, been sort of, I think, horribly sort of, exaggerated and abused and all that but to become famous is actually what you need to do in order to succeed as a brand and that means you need to be thinking more in terms of entertaining and engaging people mm-hmm. rather than preaching at
1: them. Well I think that's the thing isn't it if if preaching works to engage and, and get the entertaining then I can see there being a lever there yeah. but yeah, me, if, if, if that's
2: your shtick if, if it, and worked, it works but, in that sense, then but, fine, I can't knock it.
1: But to your very important point, I think I and we collectively have, it begins to a little bit stick in your maw, doesn't it? When you begin to get preached at by large transnational corporations that don't have their house in order and don't necessarily have the best track record of being perfectly above board and, you know, like when banks come out with snarky tweets preaching financial parsimony and they'd recently received billions of dollars of bailout money in order to survive mm. because they weren't able to manage their own money. That I feel like is uncomfortable to see and discordant and gets a lot of backlash, right? It's just, yes. you know, act do if you believe in something, act that way. Evince it through your employment, to your point taxation, the products you make, the way you make them. If you just simply stick something on top, not to get to authenticity, it just it just feels like, you know, it's not really, yeah, real.
2: Yes. Although I think that the, 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 the cardinal sin of all that is not so much that people sort of call out the hypocrisy of it, although they're perfectly entitled to, but simply because it so easily becomes boring.
1: Yeah, and if everyone's doing the same thing, then distinctiveness becomes hard once again.
0: Well, I suppose I suppose we, we're sort of running out of time, but um, I guess I just had a final question around, uh, I guess this this sort of thing of like a, a front man or a leader of an organization versus the brand itself, because um, you know it's this that comes back to maybe the mindset of an entertainer or you know your Elon Musk character that's like your figurehead. If you don't necessarily have one of those as a as a brand, are you are you going to fail or can you still? Can you still collectively get to that level of of sort of fame and attention?
2: Um, you know, like I don't know, like a successful football team. Oh, I don't. I don't think you need to have the charismatic front man at all. I mean, you know, I mentioned Shein, and um, the guy who who, who runs Shein is um, so anonymous, I can't even remember his name. It's Chinese, um, but uh, you know, and, and the same with TikTok or Airbnb, I couldn't name who it it is who runs Airbnb. I mean, the the charismatic leader, I think, is only one strategy, and it's by no means obligatory. And, And as I think we've suggested, it does have its downsides, or certainly its shadow sides, as well, so I, I wouldn't want people to take away. Oh, you know, you just have to be a wild and crazy guy and and get talked about a lot, and, and that will solve all your problems. Apart from anything else, it's very very difficult to do. I mean, it needs an incredible amount of energy, an incredible amount of far, um, and, and and probably helps if you're slightly unhinged as well. But you know, it 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 certainly works for some people and it works for some brands. But the whole point about you know the history of brand building is that it shows that. The most sort of sustainable way of doing this has, has classically not been around the, the the founders' idiosyncrasies, but it can be achieved simply by you know, synthesizing fame if you like by making sure that you have entertaining adverts that reach lots of people that create maybe you know characters and situations and and and, and constructs that that people want to buy into and own. Um, yeah, the charismatic leader may be a part of that, but it doesn't have to be. I'll, yeah, suddenly, I mean, yeah. I'll carry on, Ferris.
1: Sorry. No, no. I mean, I just I agree. It's <laughs> equally, it's something that can be quite these leaders when they get more and more famous. And, you know, let's say uh, when John Legere was CEO of T-Mobile, he seemed to get very famous on the back of that job. And, and that was probably a, a specific strategy to humanize the face of a. Sort of challenge a brand against these massive corporations that it was nominally kind of hmm. the uncarrier pushing against that kind of thing, right? But I, I do think it's yeah, it's it's also risky because then he left, right? <laughs> so yeah. then it's like you invested all this money in associating, and then suddenly he takes that takes it somewhere else. So like even with these locked in founder owners, to Paul's earlier yeah. point, companies outlast outlast people. At least yeah. you know the good brands outlast their founders. At least that's the hope, right? I was yeah, trying
0: put it's... in mind of um, WeWork, uh, the founder of WeWork. And I don't know if you guys have seen the uh, the um, TV show We Crashed. it was, uh, got Jared Leto starring as the founder, but he was almost cult-like from what I understand. And, mm-hmm. you know, he built up all this stuff. He was a big entertainer, I guess, and a, you know, a charismatic front man. But ultimately, they didn't really have anything robust behind WeWork. So it yeah. fell apart, right?
2: Well, I mean, I guess there are probably there are lots of ways of explaining that. I mean, it was it was a, a an unsound business strategy. It was a business that grew too fast, it, it, it didn't have proper foundations, it didn't have a, a sustainable business model. So yeah, certainly without any of that, any kind of fame is not enough either.
1: Yeah, and you know, confidence tricksters and con men are also very good at Entertaining and engaging people—that's absolutely. I think this is
2: this is all part of the shadow side of this 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 particular model. But um, so, again, I I wouldn't want people to leave this broadcast with a sense of you know that's what we're talking about. That is simply one way of doing it, Uh, and it's kind of interesting at the moment because there are some topical examples. But actually, if you are a brand that wants to create fame, there are other ways of doing it. it. It's not easy. But, you know, you have to at least think in terms of, well, what is it that makes everybody want to hear about Elon Musk? And what can we do that makes them want to hear about our brand? And it doesn't necessarily mean we have to have a charismatic leader who's always saying outrageous things. There are other ways of doing it, but you've got to work at it. I think that's what I was getting
0: at with the uh, cautionary tales, I suppose. Of, uh, yeah. yeah, Or um, perhaps bringing it back to Bowie with the, the disillusionment of fame um, when you were chasing it in the, in the wrong manner, perhaps, or
2: going about it in the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, a, as a final sort of footnote, I find it ironic that I'm talking so much about fame nowadays. It's simply where my thoughts have led me to because I, I think the idea of being that famous fills me with absolute horror. I mean, you know, I think you have to be a certain type of person to... To want to have that kind of fame and sustain that kind of fame, especially nowadays, where you know you will get abused and trolled and death threats and everything else, whoever you are, almost for one reason or another, just by dint of being famous. And uh, I, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be in that. I'd, I'd rather oh, be. I- I don't want to be any more famous than I am now. Though. Yeah,
1: I'd say you're a little bit famous, Paul. A little bit already. Just, you know, we have a defined universe that cares about the kinds of things we talk about, that's all. Yeah,
2: in our tiny little universe, Ferris. That'll <laughs> exactly.
1: Be okay. I can live with that, I hope.
0: Well, we're sort of running out of time, or we're coming to the end of our, our time together, but um, I just wondered if you guys had any, any final thoughts or comments or things you wanted to say about this whole sort of chat about fame and attention or you know, like you say, if you want to leave people with uh, something uh, something a little bit more um, uh, substantial or, or uplifting or positive or something to do with fame that's less about the cautionary tales?
2: Well, I've written a very good book about this. Um, and uh, <laughs> anyone who's left wondering what I really think about it all could do worse than get hold of a copy of Why Does the Peddler Sing? And and, and we'll put those we in the show notes. Um, that's that's the call to action. So thank you very much.
0: <laughs> of course, we we will put links to both your books in the show notes um, and anything else that you, you guys are up to uh, as well. Uh, Faris, any any final thoughts?
1: No, I would also recommend what is the peddler saying? It's a really <laughs> lovely book. I enjoyed reading it a great deal, and I do think to be optimistic that it's an interesting moment in which we're beginning to sort of slightly codify some things that we sort of now know which is satisfying to me because we spent a long time not really knowing. And and then all the sort of things we thought we knew about advertising were essentially the anecdotes of copywriters like Burnback and Ogilvy, which is great. It's just not, you know, rigorously sourced stuff and researched. And I I like the fact that we're building these pillars on evidence base, but at the same time we have room to interpret, to think, and to sort of develop new ways of thinking that, I hope, are are respectful to both kind of individually humans attention, because to Paul's point, entertainment's the cost of entry into someone's mind, and culturally speaking as well, like, you know, to the whole culture, we have a responsibility to try and uh, do our part as an industry to feed a healthy media ecosystem.
0: Sounds a very good point on uh, on on which to end. And um, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much, Paul and Farris, for uh, for coming on the Media Cat Magazine
1: podcast. Thanks. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, really enjoyed it.